All right, we'll try it out. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure to, uh, to be up here again to deliver the uh, Word of God to you this morning while Pastor Dan is away. Um, I was last up here on January 1st, so about 10 months ago, and exposited verses 12 through 15 of uh, Peter's second, uh, first chapter of his second epistle. So this morning, I'm going to keep going and where I left off, and we're going to cover verses 16 through 21. Uh, in my first two sermons um, from this letter, we saw Peter was teaching and preaching to his readers um, all about the grace of God and how the grace of God that we have in Christ truly transforms and empowers us as Christians to live righteously, even though we're in a world where we face opposition and uh, we can face persecution. We saw that grace introduced to us in verses 2, 3, and 4, and it really set the stage for the rest of the letter going forward. Um, and we know that believers in Christ and believers in the gospel, that we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. And as the text says, it makes us partakers of the divine nature, and it produces virtuous qualities in our lives, which allows us to bear fruit. Uh, last time we talked all about reminders, right? So that was Peter's, really his last reminder and final reminder to his readers that they should live a life that's pleasing to God and live a life that's honoring to God and live one that seeks to glorify him in everything that we do. Peter was not only dealing with persecution uh, from the Roman government and literally fighting for his life, but he had to contend against false teachers and false preachers who were pressuring and influencing the church to really abandon and shipwreck their faith, to turn away from the gospel, and turn to something else that doesn't save. So he spent a lot of time and energy fighting for his life and defending the scriptures against those who would deny the truths that we have and that we are confident in. And these false teachers, they would take the scriptures, they would twist them, um, sometimes they would do it very subtly, sometimes they wouldn't be so subtle. Um, so he was fighting against a lot of people who were very vocal in the verbal bashing of the Word of God. And if you think about what's going on in today's world, um, we encounter people just like this, people who will insult the Bible, people who will try to discredit it, people who find joy and, and want to pick fights on, on Facebook and social media over it, um, and they really find joy in doing so. So listen to some of these quotes and statements from some pretty famous atheists that you may have heard of, and some other people who are very outspoken against the Bible, who are outspoken against Christianity, and outspoken against uh, God himself. So Richard Dawkins, you probably have heard of him, he has a book called The God Delusion, and in that book he says, to be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil, but just plain weird, as you would expect of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, composed, revised, translated, distorted, and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other, spanning nine centuries. He also says this about God. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, megalomaniacal, sadomasochist, capriciously malevolent bully. A lot of really big words in there and a lot of really big insults. And this last one from the antagonist Daniel Dennett. He says, the Bible should be taught, but emphatically not as reality. It is fiction. It is myth, poetry, anything but reality. As such, it needs to be taught because it underlies so much of our literature and our culture. The kindly God who lovingly fashioned each and every one of us and sprinkled the sky with shining stars for a delight, that God is like Santa Claus, a myth of childhood, not anything that a sane, undiluted adult could literally believe in. That God must either be turned into a symbol for something less concrete 
or abandon altogether. That is what the world wants us to do, abandon God and abandon the scriptures. But I don't think this is a surprise to any of us. It shouldn't be that we have stout opponents of the word of God saying harsh and fallacious and errant things about our, our Bible and about our God, right? So we hold these words with, with um, high regard and reverence, um, but they don't. And that shouldn't surprise you because Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But it may surprise you, it may not surprise you, to know that some scholars and believers within um, the church, the Roman Catholic Church, would believe that some of the things inside this book are myths and fables, right? Quote, pretty much every story from the New Testament is seen as fact. We all agree with that. But the Old Testament is the one seen as a mix of fact and legend. The story of Adam and Eve is meant to convey theological truths, but some truths correspond one-to-one with the story. For instance, that God created the world, that there was a first man and first woman, that Satan exists, that the first man and woman sinned, and that this introduced evil into the world, etc. But there's other details that are not theological truths, that are not meant to be taken literally, such as their names, the eating of the fruit, the appearance of Satan under the guise of a snake. We simply cannot take all biblical accounts as truth and reality, as it is plain to see, if you're honest with yourself, that some accounts are very similar to a fairy tale. Now, there's a ton of other examples that I could go on and on and on, but I will spare you the pain and agony of having to hear that. So attacks on the authenticity and reliability of the Bible and of the scriptures have been going on for thousands of years, and they will continue to come at us until Christ returns. So that's what we're going to tackle this morning, right? So the sermon is going to focus on the sureness and truth that we have in Christ and that we have in the scriptures because its source is from God. It's not from man. These aren't myths. These aren't fairy tales. These aren't fables as much as the world would have you believe that they are. So I've entitled the message you can see on the screen, you can see on your bulletin, The Sure, Sufficient, Sound, and Saving Scriptures. And we have a call to action in this sermon. In verse 19, we see the words, pay attention. So that is your call to action, pay attention. No sleeping, no daydreaming, no thinking, when is this gonna be over? No thinking about what am I having for lunch? Um, You need to pay attention. Um, And that's the big idea. So the big idea is God calls us to pay attention to and respond to the sure, saving, um, sound, saving, pure, I'm sorry, the sure, sufficient, sound, saving scriptures. Too many uh, S's there. Um, So pay attention because there will be a quiz at the end. So for our remaining time together, we're going to go through the passage. Um, If you have a Bible, um, it's, uh, open it up. If you don't, you can grab one of the Pew Bibles. It's on page uh, 1018, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. The Word of God says this, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on that holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, And no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Before we dive in, um, would you bow your heads and pray? God, I thank you for this, uh, this opportunity this morning to preach your word. I pray that you would use me to uh, speak clearly, to speak the truths, um, that you would work in the hearts uh, of all of our listeners this morning to hear what you have to say. I pray that you would be magnified um, and glorified and that we would see uh, the sureness and the goodness and the trustworthiness of your word. Um, in Christ's name we pray, amen. 
So if you look on the back of your bulletin, there's, a, there's an outline. We have four points to cover through the six verses. Uh, so we'll start on point one, which is the eyewitness testimony of Christ's majesty confirms the divine nature and glory of Jesus. So looking at verses 16 through 18 for this first point. So in a sense, you could say that Peter was uh, unique, right? He was one of the 12 apostles. Um, he walked alongside of Jesus. He was with him every day. He had personal teaching and instruction from Jesus. He got to witness the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, um, along with the other 12, right, or the other 11. But more than that, Peter was unique in the fact that he was really in the inner circle of Jesus, right? Peter, James, and John were really were close, and they were kind of set apart from the other uh, apostles. So they got to see things and, and hear things and witness things that some of the others did not get to witness. So we know that there's zero doubt that Peter was 100% convinced of the truths that he taught concerning all the things of Christ, including his second coming, which we're going to talk a lot about um, this morning. When Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths, he was really speaking on behalf of the other apostles and all the other New Testament writers. Remember, a lot of these men, they, they endured serious persecution and torture over their faith, um, over following Christ, um, over abiding to his teachings and teaching others the things that Jesus taught. And they even died for it, right? That They went to their grave for Christ. Each of them had been granted supernatural insight, which confirmed the authenticity of their teachings and what they were sharing with others. Listen to some of these verses. So Matthew 13, 11, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. 1 Corinthians 2 says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So isn't that amazing? So we have the Spirit, and the Spirit's kind of acting as a bridge, connecting the profound mysteries of God on one side to the human hearts on the other side. So very graciously, this connection allows us as human beings to, to comprehend the message of the cross, which would be folly to us otherwise. So he did that in a unique way for the apostles and the New Testament writers. But Peter had critics accusing him that he taught lies and he taught clever myths and fables, and, and that's not uncommon in those days, right, to have a false teacher who would make stuff up in an effort to gain power, to gain money, to gain status, Um, and they would disguise some of these myths and false teachings very cleverly. They would be sophisticated. They would be subtly concocted ideas that were designed to deceive people. They could be lies disguised to make them appear to be truthful. Just listen to what Jeremiah says. And the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision worthless divination and the deceit of their own minds. They were essentially wolves in sheep clothing, which Jesus warned us about. And this is really no different than the situation we're in today, right? Certain well-known preachers, which I'm not going to to name by name, um, are within movements like progressive Christianity, like the Word of Faith movement, uh, like the prosperity gospel, who engage in deceitful practices and false teachings, uh, teaching anything but the true gospel. Sounds good to the ear, but if you really dive into it, um, it's not what the Bible says at all. So Peter has people like this, and he's defending himself against these accusers by stating that he didn't follow the misleading um, practices and doing all these things that the false teachers were doing. His testimony, the testimony of the other apostles and the New Testament writers, it was based on firsthand knowledge rather than relying on fictional stories or half-truths or uh, myths. So Peter is aiming to educate his readers about the power and imminent return of, of Jesus Christ, specifically emphasizing his glorious return in the second coming. Now, he had people challenging him on, will Jesus really come back again, right? He's not going to come back. They were arguing that since everything had continued as it had since the beginning of creation, Jesus certainly wasn't the powerful Messiah that the apostles claimed that he was. 
They believe that Jesus, he came once, he came in weak, uh, meekness, he came uh, in humility. He's not going to come back in power. You're crazy. Some even doubted that he would return at all. They saw him simply as a man who lived, who died, who went into a tomb, and he stayed there just like everyone else who dies. So these false teachers persisted in their denial of Jesus, despite Peter repeatedly mentioning his second coming in the first letter he wrote to them. But now he's really stressing that he and the other apostles were eyewitnesses of Christ's true majesty, which he will fully reveal to us when he comes back. So they had personally witnessed his majesty in his life, in his death, through his ministry, through his resurrection, through his ascension, um, in contrast to the false teachers who were not eyewitnesses to any of these events, yet they denied the claims about Jesus. So Peter, he could have picked a lot of different things um, because he saw Jesus do a lot of things um, that really show his majesty and glory. He could have said, let me tell you about this time. My mother-in-law, she was sick with this fever. We just could not get rid of it. Jesus walks in, grabs her hand, says, stand up, and just like that, bam, her fever, gone. He could have told about that. He could have talked about his friend Lazarus. Let me tell you, our friend Lazarus, one time, he died. He was in the grave for four days. His sisters called Jesus to Bethany. Jesus came. He walked up to the tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. And he walked out, once dead, now alive. Well, check this one out. He could have told them about the time that G, um, Peter and the apostles were with Jesus and the crowds swarmed Jesus because they wanted to, uh, to hear his teaching, right? They were hungry for what he was teaching. And like he did, he preached for hours. He delivered probably the best sermon you'd ever hear, way better than this one. And people got hungry, right? And uh, they had 5,000 men. You know, we had 5,000 men and, you know, add the women and children. We probably had 15,000 people. We have uh, a couple loaves of bread, five loaves of bread. We have two fish. Jesus blessed the food, handed it out. Everyone ate as much food as they wanted. We cleaned up the leftovers, and we had 12 baskets of food left over. Well, check out this this one. We were on a boat. And we saw someone coming towards us. It looked like a ghost walking on the water. But it was Jesus. And I said, Jesus, can I come out to you? And Jesus said, yeah, come on out, Peter. So I started to walk on the water. The coolest thing in the world. But then I got scared and I started to sink. Pretty amazing. He could have told us about that experience. He could have talked about dozens of other things. But he had in mind one particular occasion. One that dramatically previewed Christ's second coming where he came displaying the full majesty and the full greatness of God, and that was the transfiguration event that was captured in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels. And I think Peter was right for choosing this event, so I'm going to read that event to you from Mark 9, 1 through 9. He said, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah." For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. So here we are. Jesus is risen from the dead, and Peter is able to tell this story. There's a few things that stand out that display the majesty, the glory, and the, and the divine nature um, of Jesus in, the, in this transfiguration event. First, remember, Peter was not alone on that mountain. He had other eyewitnesses with him, right? His inner circle, James and John, well, this is one of the things that they got to see that um, other people did not get to see. 
But remember, they're also accompanied by Moses and Elijah. So this had to be a really special, special event, and God had to have a a reason for bringing these two Old Testament powerhouses there on that mountain for this event. Second, we see the glory and radiance of Christ displayed in how radiantly white his clothes became. In the Bible, we can see the color white can represent several different things. It can represent righteousness, purity, wisdom, holiness. It can represent joy. And we know that Jesus is perfectly and completely righteous, perfectly pure, perfectly wise, and perfectly holy. And if you think about the color white from a scientific lens, white is the presence of all light in the entire spectrum. And we're told over and over in Scripture that uh, Jesus is the light. He is the light of the world. And Peter and James and John got to see this magnificent transfiguration right in front of their eyes where, where he was just emanating this bright white. Third, they didn't just see this event happen. They got to hear something with their ears. A voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So these are words, it says, spoken by the majestic glory, and the majestic glory is just another name or reference given to God the Father. So we have Christ receiving glory and honor from the majestic glory, God the Father. We know that honor denotes the exalted status being being bestowed upon Jesus, and we know that the term glory is probably referring to the divine brilliance that is frequently portrayed in the Bible as an, ap- an attribute of God. So we have the majestic glory, God the Father, who is the ultimate possessor of all majesty and all glory, and he is there granting majesty, honor, and glory to Jesus. So I think that this undoubtedly emphasizes the divine nature of Jesus Christ And this is one way the scriptures tell us that Jesus is equal to the Father. Because if Jesus was lesser than the Father, if Jesus was not equal to him, if Jesus was not God himself, then God the Father would not give him honor and glory because he does not share his glory. Listen to Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So Jesus is God. And God the Father is completely satisfied in everything that Jesus does and everything that Jesus says. And on that mountain, God the Father gave divine witness to the glory and majesty of Christ, the Son of God, including his fulfillment of the law, which was represented by Moses on that mountain, and his superiority over the prophets, which was represented by Elijah. So if you go on to verse 19 and point two in your outline, the holy scriptures are a more sure testimony to the divine nature and glory of Jesus. So you might be thinking, all right, what can top that? We have eyewitness testimony of Jesus being transfigured in front of three of the most influential men that ever lived while Moses and Elijah were there. And to top it off, we have a voice from heaven hearing God the Father speak and give affirmation and his seal of approval on Christ, right? What is better than that? So their eyewitness testimony and account were completely accurate in complaining in proclaiming the truth of God. However, Peter is telling us that their teaching should not solely be believed because they have this wonderful eyewitness testimony. He's saying that we have something that's more sure and we have something that's more reliable than that. The prophetic word, the word of God, which every single person has in front of them right now. Peter's response to those skeptical of his eyewitness experience and his testimony implies that this source is more trustworthy than that. The scriptures are more sure than any eyewitness experience. Time and time again in the Bible, God emphasizes the fact that his word is inspired, his word is inerrant, it's infallible, it's all-sufficient, and it's the all-sufficient source for truth, which really doesn't require any human confirmation. We see this in the Psalms, we see it in Proverbs, we see it in John's Gospel, 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, uh, Daniel, all over the place, there's no denying that. We cannot lean on our own understanding or our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own experiences. We can't trust that our own heart 
We can't trust our own heart, and we don't have to because we have this that we can depend on more surely. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us the, the true condition of our heart. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And listen to what the, the gospel of Mark says about the heart. From within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And that's our condition, right? We can't trust our own understanding. We can't trust our own experiences. The lens through which we view things and we see the world is significantly distorted and blurred. And on top of that, we have forces working on us that are way more powerful than us, seeking for any opportunity to deceive us and to deceive other people. We know that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, and he seeks to devour us and tear us away from the truth. So we have uh, the vision of God experience that Joseph Smith, if you don't know who he is, he is the founder of the Mormon church, and he had this vision that is, um, is famous. So I'm going to tell you about that experience that he had. So in the spring of 1820, he had a divine experience in a grove of trees in western New York, um, out by where he lived. And allegedly during this event, God the Father and Jesus Christ appeared to him in what is commonly called the first vision. So in the early 1800s, there was a, a strong passion for religion in this country, and Joseph's family, they were, uh, they were members of various different churches, and he was uncertain as to what church he should join himself. And he was reading his Bible one day when he was 14, James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So he was going to pray to God to find out what church should I go to. I need your guidance, which is a good thing, right? So he knelt down to pray, and he says he was overcome by this dark power, but somehow he mustered up enough strength and energy to call on God to ask him for help. And here's his account. He says, I saw a pillar of light over my head above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. One of them spoke unto me, calling me by name and said, pointing to the other, this is my beloved son, hear him. Does that sound familiar? At that moment, the light appeared and Joseph said that he felt delivered from that enemy and that darkness that had overcome him and had him bound. And during the vision, Joseph says he asked, which church was correct? And Jesus himself gave him an answer. He said, don't join any of them. The Lord explained that the churches of the day believed in incorrect doctrines and that none of them was acknowledged of God as his church and kingdom. Now that was his experience, right? And that's how the Mormon church got its start. Uh, in Acts, we're called to be Bereans, right? We're, we're called to study the scriptures. We're called to test everything we hear against the scriptures to see if they're true or not. Joseph clearly didn't do that. And it's clear that the 17 million members of the Mormon church have not done that. They chose instead to abandon the more sure scriptures in favor of someone else's personal experience. And we don't need to do that. We need to look at the prophetic word. The entire Old Testament, we can look at the New Testament. We know that the inspired words of the Old Testament, that they anticipated the coming Messiah for hundreds of years. And Jesus affirmed that truth when he said in John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So Jesus was mainly referring to the Old Testament. Uh, when he said that. But it's not limited to that. Scripture is scripture. And what's true of the Old is true of the New Testament. Even Peter calls Paul's writing scriptures, a couple uh, pages over in your Bible in 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, he calls Paul's writing scripture. So these scriptures are sure. And I'm going to show you something. This is, this is pretty cool. So how many of you like math and science? Anyone? 
Anyone ever take a statistics course? No? Maybe some of you. So we had to take a, a biostatistics bio course when we were in pharmacy school. And while, while preparing this, I found some research from uh, Peter Stoner, who wrote a book uh, called Science Speaks. Now, he's a pretty smart guy. He's got a PhD in, in math. Um, and in this book, he provides a summary of scientific evidence that points to the existence of God. And this, this blew my mind. So I'm going to tell you, um, tell you what he says. So he looked at different prophecies from the Old Testament that were fulfilled by Jesus, and he wanted to determine what are the probability or what are the odds that one person in the first century could fulfill all of these prophecies, right? So there's about 332 prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled, and some that he didn't fulfill yet that he will. So Stoner looked at eight of them. He says, okay, what are the odds that one person in the first century would fulfill just eight of these? And he determined that the probability is one times 10 to the 17th power. Does anyone know the name for that number? So that's one with 17 zeros after it. So to visualize this, you have that many silver dollars, right? One with 17 zeros, you have that many silver dollar coins. And you're gonna take one out of that pile, you're gonna take your, your Sharpie, and you're gonna write your name on that coin. You're gonna put it back into the pile, you're gonna put it in the, the world's biggest cement mixer to mix them up, you're gonna drive those coins to the state of Texas, you're gonna dump that load of coins all over the state of Texas, cover the entire surface of the state. You know how thick your layer of coins would be? Two feet deep. So you have that many coins. And now I'm gonna pick a random person, Bob, you're gonna go, you're going to pick any spot in Texas that you want, and you're going to go there to find that coin. We're going to drop you off in an airplane. We're going to blindfold you. You're going to bend over. You're going to pick out, try to pick out that one coin that has your name on it. So the odds of one person fulfilling all of these prophecies is you would have an easier time doing that than one person fulfilling all of these prophecies if these were human authors writing according to their own wisdom. If it wasn't divine inspiration, then those are the odds, which is just incredible to me. And that's just eight of them, right? If you go up even higher and higher, if you did, I think, 40 of them, it was like one times 10 to the 157th power, so one with 157 zeros, which, I don't know, it's just incredible to me. So in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, you have to pay attention to this, right? Pay attention. We read, There was a rich man who, came, um, who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and looked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So did you hear that? Jesus is speaking, and he says that if someone won't believe Moses and the prophets... Right? If they won't believe our scriptures, then they certainly aren't going to believe it if they were an eyewitness to something incredible. The scriptures are more sure than any eyewitness account. 
So then Peter goes on in verse 19. He says that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, which brings us to point three on your outline. The holy scriptures shine as a source of light in a dark, sinful world. So here's our call to action from Peter, right? He says that we will do well to pay attention. And that's important because if they were going to be exposed to the subtle errors and lies of false teachers, they would need to be prepared to identify and refute the false teachings that were presented to them. Because remember, some of these things sounded really good or really, sounded really familiar with what the scriptures actually say, but they needed to know their scriptures in order to refute it. So the words that we have in, in your Bible, in this book, um, it serves as a light for us. It's a much-needed light in a dark, sinful world. So ever since the fall, ever since sin came into this world in, uh, in Genesis, sin has been eating away and causing destruction of God's very good creation. Our minds, our thoughts, they are all tainted and stained by that sin. Even as redeemed, born-again people, our minds are still dark. Anyone here, you don't have to raise your hand, um, does anyone here ever think something that you shouldn't think or say something that you probably shouldn't say or do something that you probably shouldn't do? You don't have to raise your hand because we are all guilty of that. We need to constantly remind ourselves as to what this book calls us to do, how this book says we should live, what this book says is true, this word points us towards the truth, and we need to pursue it, pursue the light. Kind of like at night when you have a light out your front door, and you flick it on, you see all the bugs going towards the light, like that needs to be us, going towards the light with everything we have. Psalm 119.105, that's a, uh, a favorite psalm for my kids. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So we need to let this word illuminate our paths. This word is going to show us how the dark, filthy sin characterizes all of us, how it takes over the world, and how disgusting it is. But it also tells us of the wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to die for our sins if we put our faith in him. And Peter goes on to talk about a day. A day is coming when the glorious return of Jesus in his full splendor and majesty will occur. Just like he saw his full glory and majesty at the transfiguration, that was a preview of a second coming. Well, that day is actually coming. And when that day comes, that will be the end of, of the darkness of sin. It's going to signify the culmination of, of God's plan of salvation from the foundation of the world, and it's going to mark judgment on the wicked. And as believers, it talks about the morning star, right? Jesus is the morning star arising in our hearts. When he arrives, every believer will be transformed into a reflection of righteousness and truth in Christ. We, are, we will no longer need this perfect revelation of Christ that we currently rely on or that we currently should rely on as we will have the eternal, perfect understanding of his being and we will enjoy and delight in his everlasting light for all of eternity. Which brings us to our last two verses and the final point for this morning. The Holy Scriptures have their source in the Spirit of God not sinful man. Peter says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here we have Peter addressing the divine inspiration of Scripture. And when it talks about interpretation, um, he's not really talking about how we are to understand this or how can we explain this. Interpretation here speaks more towards the source of the scriptures. So listen to what Jeremiah says in chapter 16 about the prophets whose source was not from God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophet who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes they speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. 
For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. He says, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. So on the contrary, Peter is saying that the apostles and the New Testament writers were moved by the Spirit. So it's kind of like a sailboat, right? How's the sailboat move? The wind blows it, but first you've got to raise up the sails of the boat. So just like a sailboat puts its sails up and lets the wind push and carry the boat along to its destination, the writers put up their spiritual sails so that they could be filled with the breath of God. Because that's what the scriptures are, right? In, in uh, Paul's letter to his protege, Timothy, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So no part of the Old Testament, no part of the New Testament came into the existence based on the thoughts and ideas of man. God blew his breath into the sail of these writers, and that's how we got this wonderful book. So the scriptures, they are our highest authority, right? We have no higher source than that. Not the church, not tradition, not the pastor, not the elders. No, scripture is its own authority, and it has the Spirit as its divine author. Every single word, every single book was given by inspiration. Now, we do have human authors, right? God did use men um, to write this, and he allowed them to use their personalities to make this happen. But the content can be trusted and should be trusted because everything there is from God. And the most important message in this book is the gospel message, right? So you can escape the penalty that's due to you for your sin, right? If you're, if you're honest with yourself and you read the Bible, it is clear that I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, everyone in this room, everyone in this world is a sinner. We have sinned against God, and he would be right and just to bring his wrath and his punishment on us for all of eternity. Now, that's, that's bad news, right? It's terrible news. But the good news is that God sent Jesus, his son, right? Remember, this is the same Jesus that God bestowed honor and glory on, the one with whom God is well pleased. He sent him here to live a perfect, sinless life. And then he put him on a cross, poured out his wrath on Jesus while he hung there, and put him to death, right? But he didn't stay dead. He rose three days later, defeating sin, defeating death, defeating Satan, and he offers forgiveness of sin, and he offers the perfect righteousness of Christ to anyone who would just repent and put their faith in Christ and what he did on the cross. God punished Jesus so you can go free, and that's the good news of the gospel. So if you're not a believer, that's what you need to believe. That's the message that's in this book, and I hope I did an okay job explaining to you as to why this is so sure and that why we can trust that message. If you already believe this, then that's great news. Um, there's a couple applications that we can pull from this, right? I said Peter demands a response from us based on what he said. So the first thing is to be a student of the scriptures, right? Do you know how the experts in money detect counterfeit money? I'm not talking about the guy at Walgreens who pulls out the black pen and marks it. Like how does someone who really knows counterfeit money, how do they know something's counterfeit? They do it by studying real money, right? How does it feel? How does it look? How does it smell? Do I have all the right watermarks? Is this there? Is that there? They study real money. They know and spend lots of time getting to know the real deal. So when they hear or when they, when they see something that is fake, when they see a fake bill, they'll know it immediately and they can say with confidence that this is phony. Well, that needs to be us with the scriptures, right? We need to study it every day. You need to read it, meditate on it, memorize it, discuss it with other brothers and sisters who will be faithful to the text. That way when you encounter someone 
who is a critic of the word, someone who's trying to discredit the Bible, discredit what Jesus did on the cross, someone like Richard Dawkins who will say some really nasty things about God, you can respond with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, right? Through scripture, we encounter God's character, we encounter his plan of salvation, we encounter his promises, and his guidance for righteous living. And this knowledge enriches our faith and equips us for every good work. Number two is search for the Savior. So I'm sure most of you go through some sort of daily Bible reading plan or, or something like that to, to help you stay in the Word and stay on track. Um, Jesus said, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can you imagine like being there for that Bible study, like going through the Bible and seeing how does this point to Jesus? So when you read your Bible, are you looking for how that passage or how that chapter or how that book might point us to Christ? We know that all the scriptures, Old Testament, point to Jesus, right? So I challenge you to seek those connections out. So I love how in our Sunday school curriculum, there's always a, a Christ connection section that really makes it clear how the passage that we're studying points to, to Jesus. Um, I heard the pastor at the church we go to when we're down the shore say one time that when you're reading your Bible, you should write on the top of every page, like where, where did I see Jesus in, on this page, right? So look for, look for those opportunities. And I think that'll be super helpful in um, helping you focus on Jesus in your scriptures as you read. So the next is uh, be an evangelist since you aren't an eyewitness or because you can't be an eyewitness, right? What does the Great Commission say? It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that should be your goal, to make every single person you encounter to be a follower or a disciple of Jesus. Now, I know that you don't have the power to convert someone. I don't have the power to do that. That's only through the power of God. But you can share the gospel with every single person that you encounter, right? You can invite them to church. You can invite them to Sunday school. You can give them a gospel tract. Um, there's a million different things that you can do somehow to point them to Jesus, um, every week in my Sunday school class, um, I teach like little guys, right, like kindergarten through second grade. I give them homework every single week, and that homework is to tell someone about Jesus this week. So that should be our homework too, right? Tell someone about Jesus. It can be scary, right? People are mean. We're, 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 we have a fear of man. What if they don't like me for telling them the gospel? No. What if they love you for telling them the gospel? What if they love you for telling them the news that will save them from their sin and allow them to be in the eternal presence of Jesus Christ, right? What if they love that? What if they are so thankful that you cared more about their salvation than you did your fear of man, right? Let your love for them override your fear. You might say, what if I lose them as a, as, as a friend, right? No, what if, you gain them, what if you gain a brother or sister in Christ? How much better is that? What if I don't know enough about the Bible to do it? Well, then go back to point one, right? Study, be a student of the scriptures, but still tell them about Jesus. Like everyone here who's a member of the church had to recite what the gospel is. So everyone here knows the gospel, right? Pastor Dan said it a million times, God, man, Christ responds. God is perfect and holy. Man is a sinner. We sinned against God. We deserve punishment for that. But Jesus came, died on the sins, died on the cross for my sins, and my response is to put my faith in him. Everyone knows that. You can at least start there. Number four, we need to be a doer of God's word, right? We don't need to be hearers only, as we see in James 1.22. Scripture commands us to conform our lives to its teaching. It commands that we align ourselves with God's divine will. So we need to allow the word of God to transform us from the inside out. And we need that to permeate every aspect of our life. And lastly, we need to lean not on our own experiences and feelings, 
but on the testimony of scriptures, especially when making decisions in life, right? Um, you're looking for a new job. Is anyone doing that besides me? Do <laughs> you look for guidance from scriptures and the Holy Spirit to help you? Rather than thinking, I'm going to choose this job because it's going to get me the fattest paycheck, it's going to get me a company car, it's going to get me prestige, it's going to look really, really good on LinkedIn. No, like, let's not focus on those things, right? How about we look for a job that will allow us to glorify Christ better? Choose a company that is more in line with Christian values. There's a million other examples you could do about decisions. Do I go to this school? Do I move to this city? Um, Whatever it is, are we using our spiritual discernment that God has gifted us in our everyday decisions? And do we lean and depend on our brothers and sisters in Christ to help us through and navigate these different decisions that we make? So that's all that I have this morning. Um, I pray that that, um, I was faithful to the text And um, I pray that we will all leave here um, with with a new way to approach the scriptures, a a passion and zeal um, for Christ. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, in a world that is filled with uncertainties and um, fleeting ideologies, we have been blessed with your unchanging word, with our holy scriptures. God, just as Peter affirmed the eyewitness account of Christ's work and the prophetic word, God, I pray that we would affirm that the Bible is, is breathed out by you and that it is our ultimate authority. God, we know that it is a light guiding us through the darkness of this sinful world. And we know that it has the power to, to, to transform lives and to change hearts. God, I pray that you would deepen our knowledge of you and the things that, you have, that you've revealed to us in the scriptures. I pray that you might let us apply your teachings, that we might be doers of your word, and I pray that you might give us a passion to share your word with a world that desperately needs it. God, with the Holy Spirit as our guide, we know that we can live lives that's marked by godly wisdom, strength, and hope. And I pray that our faith be firmly rooted in the unchanging word of God who shines as a light in our generation. Amen.